0: Anyway, Christmas with Chris uh, is a video devotional, and we really want to encourage all of you to sign up, and it's very easy, just go to uh, the JAR website, uh, thejar.org, and uh, you can just click on it, it'll say Christmas with Chris, you click on that, and you'll get a two and a half to three minute devotional, so it's not going to be like taking all your time, like... I'm going to do here in just a little bit. Um, But it'll only be about two and a half, three minutes long. But there'll be a scripture, and I think it'll be a great way for you to kind of, um, you know, take each day during this Christmas season to say, hey, I'm going to commit to kind of connecting with the Bible and uh, hearing a devotional. And it's a great way to share with friends and coworkers um, because if they are, uh, you know, around your office desk or whatever and you're watching it, uh, you can say, hey, it's real easy. All you got to do is go on, p- give them your e- email. They won't, we're not going to send anybody anything. Um, so I hope you all do that. So write that down. Put it a middle note, uh, Christmas with Chris. Sign up for that uh, today. Uh, the second thing I'd like you to do is pull out uh, this little card. It says Divorce Care. Um, one of the things that we want to be... Uh, here at the Jar is loving all people when they go through different pain. And there's no doubt that when you go through a divorce, um, there's some pain to that, especially sometimes when you experience it for the first time. Um, It's maybe the first Christmas, you know, that uh, you're going to be there and your kids won't be there. Or uh, that, you know, the whole marriage thing just isn't the same. And we want to be the type of church that really... Uh, Is not about condemning, but about caring and comforting and loving people. And so we're providing this kind of opportunity for people who might be experiencing divorce or you just feel like, hey, you know, um, I'm struggling with that, that you could come and be a part of this on uh, December 13th. And um, I think the second group that I want to talk to is maybe some of you who you have friends and you know they just went through a divorce this last summer. Uh, or this last fall, and there's some kind of pain or hurt that they're experiencing. Rather than just saying, hey, sucks to be you, you know what I mean? Um, why don't you take this and, and actually invite them? And, and this is the... I'm going to give you a challenge. If you got a divorced friend that's going through something, why don't you actually say, hey, I'll go with you? It's only one night. This isn't going to be like five different things. It's just one commitment. And say, hey, I'll go with you. And you sit with them, and uh, it's a totally different thing. Um, So there's that. Last thing, and then we'll jump into the teaching. Um, Did you realize that 60% of your friends, um, if you invited them to come to Christmas Sunday, will come? That's statistics across the board. Um, Christmas is a time in which people don't want to uh, not feel like they, you know, it's like not being American if you don't go to church on uh, Christmas. And so uh, I just want to invite you, to uh, invite friends, coworkers, somebody, and do the invitation now. That's why we have these printed out now, so that they can tell you no. And then you can wait two weeks, and you can say, I know you said no, but I just wondered if that was no forever or just no, like during that no. And then you can invite them again, okay? And uh, there's a method to our madness. Um, and so I just want to encourage you uh, to do that. In fact, I'm going to give you a challenge right now, okay? How many of you like a challenge? Like three people raise their hand, you know? This is your challenge. Your challenge is to invite one person who is disconnected from the church or far from God. So that's all you got to think. And you can think about more than one if you want to, if you want to be, you know, what do they call that? High achiever, I guess. But just one, uh, so do that. Well, let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll jump right in. Father, you know that this morning as I was praying, I had asked you that I just wanted people to meet you today. That more than my teaching or the music or more what's going on in their life or anything that's said, that people would actually hear from you. And I ask that right now, God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would reach down and you would touch the life of every single person who is here this morning. So God, come now and teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the cool things about the Bible is something that I think we often take for granted. And that is that we have four stories, four different authors that write on the life of Jesus. Now, you may not know where those are in the Bible, so I thought I'd just kind of share those with you uh, this morning. But there are the first four books of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what's really, really interesting is that two of these accounts don't even mention the birth of Jesus. And those two are uh, Mark and John. It's not even there. They begin their story 30 years after Jesus was born. And they talk about his public ministry, and that's kind of the way those two books work. The other two, Matthew and Luke, actually start with uh, a birth concept. But they are two very different starting places. Luke starts with a really cool story about an angel coming down to Jesus' cousin's mom. And the cousin was John the Baptist, his mom and the angel comes down and says, you're going to have a baby. And then the same angel goes to this teenage girl named Mary who's engaged, but she had not had sex yet with Joseph, her fiancé, and the angel says, you're going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm sure she's like, what? He's like, no, 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 it's going to happen. And that's a cool story, you know, an angel and that. But Matthew, uh, the one that we're going to look at today, it doesn't start that way. It's very unique. It starts actually with a genealogy, a whole list of Jesus' family. In fact, when you first start reading it, You you probably think, I ain't going to read through all these names. I don't know all these people. Forget that. You know, it's like on the New York Times bestseller. You know, people don't get there by going, hey, I'm going to spend the first chapter of my book um, listing 300 names of people of the person that I'm going to write. You know how many of those books sell? None. But that's what Matthew does. I mean, it's not a real gripping way to kind of, you know, begin a book. But that's how Matthew does it. Now, my question is this. How many of you know someone who is obsessed with their family tree? Anybody know somebody like that? They're like obsessed. Okay. Well, my uncle is one such person. He, he, he's passed away now, but that's really what he looked like. He looked mean pretty much all the time. I won't go any further. Anyways, but he um, he was into genealogy. And he, he bought computers, and he, he had, like, different computers that were, like, for this section and that. And he, he went to genealogy libraries, and he spent months of his life, literally. He was a bachelor, didn't have any kids, didn't have a life, so you do genealogy, you know what I mean? And so he did, it. and he traced our family before he died all the way back to Germany and how we, we came to the U.S. And uh, he lived in Florida, so my wife Jennifer and I, when we were uh, first married the first few years, we didn't have any money, you know, to stay at a hotel. So that's when you call a relative, right, in Florida, and you're like, hey, uh, I'm going to stay... I wonder if we could stay with you. And so we stayed with him. And he gets all of his genealogy stuff. Now, it's my family, so I'm like entrenched with it. And I'm like, oh, this is cool, Uncle Phil. And he's going on and on. And I look across the room, and Jennifer, my wife, is starting to cry. Tears of boredom. She's like bored out of her mind. She's like, oh, no. But to the Israelites, to the people of God, genealogical tables and genealogy lists, they love that stuff because it showed um, that their ancestor was heroic. Now, let's go ahead and let's look at uh, the first verse in Matthew, very first first verse of the New Testament. And in verse 1, it says this This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And uh, just so you guys know, the word Jesus and Messiah are interchangeable. One is Greek, one is Hebrew, but they mean exactly the same thing. So Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, David was a king that everybody wanted to be a part of his lineage. Um, It's like if you're in, uh, you know, the old country in England. You all want to be a part of the monarchy, right? Because that means you don't have to work the rest of your life and you get to go to all these parties. So everybody wanted to be connected to David because there were special rights, if you were. So the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now, Jacob is the first of four shady characters that I want to share with you this morning that's in Jesus' genealogy. They're littered throughout it. There are many more, but there's these four that I want us to look at. So let's look at that first phrase again. Abraham... Was the father of Isaac. Now, everybody liked Abraham because Abraham was the father of all nations. So, every nation that was founded either by Jews, Muslims, or Christians, all of them find their roots in Abraham. So, you're like, oh, okay, Abraham, he's a good guy. And then you go a little bit further Abraham, whose son uh, was the father of Isaac. Isaac was a good guy. Then you're like, Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Matthew's writing all this, and then he gets to Jacob, you're like, oh no. Not Jacob. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver. He lied to his own brother so that he could steal the inheritance, and he deceived his father. So, you're like, what? Matthew, why did you have to put him in the list? You know, why did you have to do that? Now listen, in ancient times, what would happen is if you were a really important person, like an emperor or uh, a person with wealth, you hired people to write your ancestral history. And if you're getting paid to write someone's history and it's dependent upon you you know, getting a paycheck, you don't write stuff in about liars and deceivers, do you? You just kind of flip through that and you're just like, ah, I'm not going to, you know, talk about them. But when we come to Matthew, he writes Jesus' family tree in such a way in which he doesn't make Jesus look very good. And he puts in some crazy cousins and some kooky uncles. You know, the people that are in your family that you just kind of avoid talking about at Christmas? I know, you're all holy people. But in my family, they talk about my dad a lot. So that's the way it is. But you're kind of like, okay, well, Jacob's this liar and he's a deceiver. Uh, Maybe Matthew just had a bad idea. Bad day. You know, Matthew's writing this. He's writing the story of Jesus. He's starting with this genealogy. And you're like, ah, you know, he forgot one bad apple. Maybe he fell asleep. Everybody has one bad apple in the family. All right, we'll just kind of let it go. Well, I wish that were the case, folks, but it's not. It gets even worse. Now, in Jewish culture, in Matthew's day, um, it was a patriarchal society. In other words, it was all based upon males. Females were second class citizens. I, I, I'm not that way. I got three females living in my house. I walk in, I bow down to them. You know what I mean? But in that day, you know, it, it just wasn't that way. And so you never put women in your genealogy. And guess what? Matthew puts four women in Jesus' family tree. No. Not just men. And and it's just not good. And three of these women, I'm telling you, you don't put them. You don't talk about them. And two of them weren't even Jewish. Because if you're trying to convince the people that you're writing to that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one, the only, you... You want to make sure he's got a pure Jewish bloodline that goes all the way to King David, because King David was the star. If you go to Israel today, they still talk about on their flag what the Star of what, Star of David. So you want to be connected with that. But he lists these women, and two of the three of them aren't even Jewish. And you're like, what are you doing, Matthew? You're not making a very good case that this guy is the son of God. I mean, it doesn't help Jesus' case at all that people are going to believe in the first century that he really was the Messiah. So listen to how it goes. It goes on to say, Jacob, the liar, the deceiver. Is anyone here named Jacob? One guy. Sorry, Jacob. (laughs) All right. Every Jacob except that Jacob. Um, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah and the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother's name was Tamar. That's the next shady character, Tamar. Now, as I said, to any first century Jew, they knew the stories of all of these ancestors that are in the family line. And they're like, this is a woman. She doesn't belong here. And then it goes on a little bit further, and you're like, well, she's even an outsider. She's not even a pure Jew. She's a foreigner. And if it wasn't bad enough, folks, what's even worse than that is that in Genesis chapter 38, it tells us that she was a widow, and she was in bad shape. You see, if you were a widow in ancient days, your children were your Social Security. There's only one problem with Tamar. She didn't have any kids. I mean, your check for Social Security back in those days were your kids. Today, now people with Social Security checks give their check to their kids. You know what I mean? But that was the way it was. And her father-in-law, she didn't have any kids, and her father-in-law treated her really, really bad. And so she goes and she disguises herself as a prostitute and she seduced him to sleep with her. I see some of your faces. You're like, ugh. So she could bear a kid. This is a scandalous story. I mean, if you have, and I'm not going to ask you to like, turn to your neighbor and say, hey, tell, up your mo- tell us your most messed up relative. You know what I mean? Because you might be that person. I don't know, you know. But you don't, you don't talk about those things. You know what I mean? And it's in Jesus' genealogy. And next week, we're going to talk about this story here. Because I'm a little bit concerned because it's the kind of story that's so dicey, you probably shouldn't even tell it in church. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, I don't know, what's rated more than R. Now, I was going to say, please, nobody say anything, because people will think that you watch those kind of movies. So this person up here in this area that's wearing a red... I love you guys. Well, Tamar is like way, way out there. That story, sleeping with your father-in-law, having a kid, seriously. Seriously. I mean, Matthew, when you're writing down the list, don't you think you could just forget that one? Like, don't put that one in the list. That doesn't help Jesus' account at all. But no, Matthew includes her and everybody in Jewish history who would read this when they got there, and they they would say, and Tamar, they'd be like, oh, the story of Tamar. Oh, my goodness. They all knew it. Then Matthew goes on in the family tree, and it says, Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was, what's it say? Rahab. Oh, no. It's another woman. And she's not Jewish. What are you doing? You're killing us, Matt. Well, thank God at least, she didn't disguise herself as a prostitute. She was a prostitute! And if you remember the story, she helps the two Israelite uh, spies, and now she's in the story. She's in the story of Jesus. What was Matthew thinking? I mean, if you're trying to get ancient Jewish people to believe that He is divine, that He is the Son of God... What in the world are you doing? Sprinkling all these shady characters in his family lineage. Just forget them. Why off the offerings? Why are you distracting us with listing all the people who have flubbed up, messed up, and screwed up in this thing called life? Why are you putting them in there? Well, finally, we get to David. We're like, ah, oh, thank God. David, the greatest king of Israel. Everybody loves David. He has a star, you know what I mean? David the star, the star of David. So the scripture says, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. We finally arrived. It sounds good. Okay, let's do King David and let's go straight to Jesus. But he doesn't do that. Matthew continues on and he says this, David was the father of Solomon. And look how he writes this whose mother was Uriah's wife. Uh-oh. Woo! Right or error? That's when editors come in and say, I don't think we should put that in there. Say what? Why don't you... I mean, Matthew, why don't you just say Solomon? And then just mention Solomon's kids. You know what I mean? Why do you have to stop right in the middle of that and say Solomon... whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And and isn't it interesting? She doesn't even get named. Isn't that weird? It's kind of like, this is how history will write. I'm not doing anything political here, so let's know that straight up. But this is how history will do. Bill Clinton, who who, uh, had an affair with a woman in the office. Now, if I wrote that to you guys, all of you would know that person's name is Monica what? Lewinsky. Lewinsky. Like you'll go through the rest of your life and you will know that. Why? Because it's the same thing. When they wrote this, they didn't have to put the woman's name down, which all of you that are biblical scholars, the woman's name is what? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Goody two-shoes over here again. We have X-rated people and then we have Bible scholars right in the same direction. (laughs) Right here, okay? That's the jar, <laughs> and I love it. Um, so, her name's Bathsheba, and again, the readers of the Old Testament they would be like, "What's up with this, Matthew? Don't do this." I mean, we don't want to hear about King David's flaws. We want to hear about when he killed the giant Goliath and he, he battled people and he won wars and he took over. That's what we want to hear about. You see, King David was the Jewish king, but even he faltered. You see, he had an affair with one of his general general's wives named Bathsheba. And then if that weren't enough, he said, well, i got to get rid of that guy because I want Bathsheba. So he put... Uriah, who was Bathsheba's uh, husband, at the front line and had him killed so that he could have a little two and a tango with Bathsheba and got rid of him. And so David and Bathsheba now are adulterers. Now look at this, folks. This is your family lineage. You've hired someone to write your lineage and they start writing down the characters and this has something to do with you. And it says... Liar, deceiver, slept with her father-in-law, prostitute, adulteress. I'm in that family. They're like, serious, Matthew, what were you thinking? Folks, this is the worst moment of David's life. And he puts it in there. He, he doesn't just say Solomon and then goes on. He says, Solomon, who really wasn't even, you know... You're like, oh. I mean... Matthew hasn't even gotten to the story of Jesus. I mean, come on, let's get talking about the little baby and let's talk about the shepherd and the sheeps and the the wise men and David and the angel. No, we're talking about all these messed up people. What's up with that? Well, here's why I think he did it. You see, Matthew spent three years with Jesus. He was there when... They taught. He was there when he saw him heal people. He was there when he was crucified on the cross. He was there when there was an empty tomb. And Matthew knew all of these shady characters that were carrying all this baggage and the embarrassing stories. And Matthew also knew this, that this Jesus guy, he was fully God. He was the Son of God, flesh of God, came from heaven. But that he also was fully human. He came from humanity. He represents all of God's kingdom. And he represents all of humanity. And that's who Jesus is. And Matthew knew that. And then he does the unexpected thing. And this is the point, folks, of Matthew starting with the genealogy. This is the point. Jesus didn't just come for sinners. Jesus came from sinners. He didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. And Matthew knew firsthand what this was like. That there was light that was coming to darkness. There was life that was coming to a world that was characterized by death. And the result of forgiveness coming into the world that only knows how to condemn people. And the other thing that Matthew knew, and maybe this is what motivated him more than anything else, to put all of these seedy characters in his genealogy, what motivated him maybe more than anything else was this. This was Matthew's story. It's your story. It's my story. Because you see, the people like Jacob and the people like Rahab and the people like Judah and Tamar and Bathsheba were his kind of people. These were his peeps. These were his friends. And they were just embarrassed about some things in their life. And Matthew had an embarrassing background also, especially when it comes to the first time that Matthew ever met Jesus. He met him at a a place that's really actually quite beautiful. It's the Sea of Galilee. We have a picture of of it. And it's a, a huge, huge sea, kind of like an ocean, kind of like Lake Erie, you know, you can't, it's just so big, it's so huge. And Matthew actually lived, there were all these little port cities that were around it, and Matthew actually lived in one of these cities called Capernaum. And one day, Jesus is in a boat, and he pulls up to this port called Capernaum, and he gets out of the boat, and he starts walking up towards the shore, we don't know, maybe it was a dock, maybe it was just right off onto the sand. And as he started walking, all of a sudden people start coming and dropping, plopping people who are sick on the ground in front of him. And Jesus is walking and all of a sudden there are some friends that come and they plop down this man who was their friend who was paralyzed since birth. And they drop down this man who's been paralyzed, and they're like, they're looking at the man, then they look at Jesus. Then they look at the man, then they look at Jesus. Then they look at the man, and they look at Jesus, and they're like, hey, can you help us? Can you do something here? Jesus already had a reputation at that time of being a healer. He, this is what happened all the time. Jesus gets out the boat, folks, and there are tons of people that are bringing the sick to him so that he would heal them all the time. And by this time, you know when you're when you got that kind of healing power, word gets out Jesus is here. yeah the guy oh man I got a sick cousin oh I got a sick brother bring him bring him and they're all lined up and all of a sudden there's this big crowd of people and they're all around Jesus, and then Jesus does a really unusual thing. He looks down at this man and he says, "Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven." Now, I want you to turn to the person beside you. Why? This is not like, you don't even have to be a biblical scholar. This might be your first time ever in church. You will get this answer correct. I I guarantee it. Why do you think this this paralyzed man, his friends, brought the man to Jesus? Tell the person beside you. Why? To heal him, right? Some of you've been in way too, you've been in church a lot longer than because I know some of you, and you didn't get it right. Five chapters of the Bible. Tomorrow. No, I'm joking. Christmas with Chris tomorrow. Okay, so isn't that weird? Like why would you say that? Why does he say that? Well, the religious leaders and the teachers of the law and the scribes and the Pharisees, all of them are around there too. Because they don't like this Jesus guy. They're taking their peeps. Jesus is taking people away from the Jewish leaders. And Jesus gives them a little dig. And when he says this, they're like, Whoa! Wait a minute, you can't be doing that. You can't tell this guy that his sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. Then there's this real, real, real long pause. And Jesus says, that's right. I've been given all authority to forgive other people's sins. And the religious people go berserk. They like start running out go tell people. Now, he's not just killing people and doing things that are illegal. He actually just said he can forgive sins. Oh, my word. And you know, all the church people show up. Oh, my goodness. Did you hear what he's doing? (laughs) We had an old lady at church, my dad pastor, she'd always walk down like that. I loved her, but she was definitely the church lady. (laughs) And they're like, he is actually equating himself with God. He can't do that. That's blasphemy. And it's almost just like an afterthought. Before the drama gets too big, Jesus just turns down to the man and says, hey, why don't you pick up your mat and go home? You're healed. And it happens. And the people were standing all around And they're like, what gives? This guy's just a man. We know he's a man because we know Tamar. And we know all of these people that were messed up. He's just a man. What gives authority for him to do that? Now, we don't know if Matthew was there. We just know he writes about this story. We don't know if he was there or not. We don't know even if he was in the same vicinity of this scene. We don't know if Matthew heard this experience on this moment. But this is what we do know, is that when Matthew was writing his account of the life of Jesus, he makes sure that the audience knew that the moment right before he met Jesus was the moment that Jesus looked at a paralyzed man and said, your sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. Because moments later, Jesus meets Matthew, eyeball to eyeball, the Savior of the world for the first time. And here's how it happened. Matthew writes this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, I want you to know that I think this is his most embarrassing moment of his life you ever been to one of those parties before where you get there and everyone starts talking? They're like, okay, what's your most embarrassing moment? You know, somebody's like, ah, I killed my cat, you know, or something like that. And, I'm not against cats, okay? Maybe that wasn't the best analogy. But something that's, like, really embarrassing, you know? And, and I have a feeling that Matthew was like, let me tell you about my most embarrassing moment. It was the first time that I ever met Jesus, He comes off of this boat and he walks up and all of a sudden something is being told about him claiming to forgive sins. And Jesus then leaves that scene and he walks right up to my tax collector's table. They're like, no, 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 really, what were you doing? I was just sitting at a table collecting taxes from people. Now some of you might be like, well, that's not so embarrassing. I have a brother that works for the IRS, you know what I mean? And he takes people's tax money all the time. Well, this is a totally different culture. First of all, the Romans um, would take 60%, 70% of everything that you had to begin with. And because if you're you know, a Roman person, you probably don't want to go in a Jewish area and try to take all of their wealth. So you hire Jewish people to do that and they gave these little 5-year kind of passes where you you had to bring in the Roman tax but then you could charge a surtax on top of that of whatever you wanted to do so just think about that if uh, that happened in our culture you hate taxes the way they are And now all of a sudden, think that we have all of these people that are going to tax you more, not just for what the government needs, but for a foreign government, and then they're going to put a surtax of what you're going to pay them on top of that. These are the kind of people, folks, that you threw eggs at their cars. When you were a teenager, you took, you know, toilet paper and put it up in their tree. These are the people that you caused havoc on because they were despised. And this is what's interesting. Every time that you see the word tax collector, almost every single time in the New Testament, you know what's right beside it? It says the tax collectors and sinners. So the tax collectors were like the lowest of the low of the low. They're the worst type of sinners. Matthew was one of these, he was an embarrassment to his family. He was hated by all religious leaders. He wasn't even allowed to go in the temple because there were laws that stated that if you were a tax collector, you were ceremonially unclean. So you were cut off. So who are his friends, folks? Tax collectors and sinners. But then Jesus walks right up to him one day and he sees, can you imagine that? You see the Son of God For the first time, eyeball to eyeball, Jesus just starts walking towards him. He's got his little table, and he's walking towards him. And behind him are all of the Jewish disciples. And guess what about them? They hate tax collectors. Andrew, James, John, Peter, they all hate tax collectors too. They're probably walking up like, look at that big old fat tax collector. Big old sinner, he going to hell? Hell yeah! You know what I mean? They're like, that's what they're saying. Now some of you are more upset that I said hell now than you are at the fact that I'm going to to show you something in about 15 minutes that I'm telling you right now it is going to change the way you approach God. And they're all talking about him. They're like, oh man, whoa, blah, 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 And Jesus walks right up to him. He says, Hey, you want to follow me? And Peter back here, the big loudmouth, is back there like, whoa, 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 You know, everybody's got one of those friends. They all, maybe you are that friend, I don't know. But they have a loudmouth. They always say something. You know what I mean? And that's the way Peter was. And the disciples are like, say, what were you doing? Don't say that. And Jesus, like, turns around. and He's like, shh, don't make me come back there. <laughs> he's like, hey, hey, guys, this is Matthew. Matthew, this is the guys. And, you know, it's like when uh, it's your 14 teenage, I don't have teenage girls, but I've seen it happen. They're fourteen, they really don't want to be introduced to anybody, but and they don't really even like the person. But the parent steps in the way and they're like, Introduce yourself. And they're like, Hi, my name's (laughs) Brendy. Whatever, you know. This is what's going on. These disciples, they hate tax clubs. They hate this guy, and he's trying to get them together. But Jesus, where are you going? That's what Matthew says. He says, "Yeah, I, but where are you going?" And Jesus said, "Where are we going? Well, how about we go to your house?" And I have a feeling that at that point Peter probably came to lu, "That's it. We are not going to his house. Jesus, people already think we're kooky enough the way that it is because all of these things that are going on and people think we're weird and freaked out and if we start going to tax collectors' houses, it's over for us. But Jesus stopped and He looks and He says, No. Hey guys, Matthew is going with us. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts looking around He's like, Hey, Matthew, I see you got some friends there. Why don't you bring them all along with you, too? Now, who's his friends? All the other tax collectors and what? And sinners. They're all, like, over there. We'll just have a great old time together. We'll have a big old party. And Peter and all of them are like, oh, man, please. Ugh. Now we're going to his house. It was bad enough that we were just talking to him. But now we're going to his house and he's inviting all his friends. And as the story goes on, Jesus and the disciples gather with Matthew and his friends. So it's like, you know, these messed up people who aren't allowed to do anything spiritually in the culture. And Jesus and the disciples, and they're all together and they're hanging out but there was one other group of people that we find out was there as well. You know who was that? I don't think that was very grammatically correct. Um, Do you know who they were? (laughs) The church people, the temple, the scribes, the Pharisees, and they're all spying in. Oh my, you see whose house he just went into? You know, it's like today, when you see someone go into a bar, you know what I mean? And if you're legalistic enough, and you think that if you drink, you're going, I'm not going to say it again, but uh, you know where you're going. That if you're that legalistic, you know, and people do that all the time, or, oh, I, I, I don't know, but I saw that dude, you know, he was like going up to Oasis, you know. Some of you are getting convicted, I can tell. But this is what's going on, and these people are like, oh my goodness, he's going into the home of a tax collector. Because this is the truth, folks, tax collectors had cooties. They had cooties that no one else had, and if they had the cooties, you couldn't... There. You see, if you the law was very clear, if you got near a tax collector, you weren't allowed to go in the temple. So all of the religious people are like, "Well, no, we can't go up there." So let's just wait and let's look. Oh, and then they find a couple of the disciples, and they're like, "Hey, Andrew, James, come on over here." And they're like, "We don't get it." Your master, we don't get it. Your teacher, your rabbi, on the one hand, he talks about the righteousness and the goodness and following the law, but then he goes and he eats with the scum of the earth, the tax collectors and sinners. What is happening? And Jesus must have got word to this somehow. He must have heard it or heard some commotion outside. And remember, folks, who's writing all this down? Who's writing it? Matthew. So he knows what's going on. And Jesus comes out and he sends a message. And here's what he says. He says, follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, just imagine, you're Matthew and all these people that are the tax collectors, and you hear that. At first, you're like, yeah, Jesus, give them... Whoa. Okay, if they're healthy, then we're what? We're sick. That's sick. Now, Matthew and all of his tax-gathering friends, they they could be offended by this, couldn't they? But they weren't. Because do you know what people know who are far from God? that they're far from God. When I was in college, the period of my time that I was the furthest from God, I didn't need someone to come up to me and say, hey, you're far from God. I already knew it. But because Jesus did not come with a judgmental heart, and because he came with an open mind, and he even said, hey, I'll go to your house. I don't care what anyone says. When he said it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick, Matthew knew. You know what? I never never really thought of myself as sick, but I guess that's probably right. If you put a full person who is filled with righteousness and then you put me beside him, you know what? Yeah, I guess I'm pretty sick. And then Jesus goes on and he says this. He says, "But go." And who is he talking to? He's not talking to Matthew he says, but go, he's talking to the religious people. And then he pulls out this quote. He says this. He says, I want you to learn what this means. In the Old Testament, which they would have known, he says this. He says, I, this is God talking, I, God, desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he speaks for himself. And Jesus says this. For I have came not to call the righteous, but what? In other words, why did Jesus come? I've not come for the righteous people, for the good people, for the people who think they have it all together. I have come for sinners. And this wasn't offensive to them. Because they knew they were. And folks, as Matthew writes this genealogy of Jesus, he includes the sinners of his family tree because he realized that this was the whole point. This is the whole point, folks. This is it of why Jesus came to earth. You want to know why Jesus came to earth? This is the reason why. Jesus did not come for the righteous, but he came for sinners. For people like me, who flub up and mess up and screw up and yell at his wife, and sometimes ignore my kids, and sometimes try to please all other people instead of God, People came for sinners like me. Or Jesus came for sinners like me. And Matthew understood better than maybe any of the other gospel writers about the Christmas story. Because the Christmas story is about God drawing people closer to Him that are being drawn further apart. It's about leaning into people who are leaning away from Him. And Matthew understood that the reason I put these people in this genealogy is because this reflected why Jesus came to planet Earth to begin with. You know, at the end of three years, uh, Jesus... uh, Goes on a cross and he dies. And so Matthew has to put all this together. And Matthew has to discover something. What is it that this man has impacted my life? And this is what I think Matthew discovered. He discovered this, that Jesus changed the rules. Jesus changed the rules and anyone now could approach God. Jesus changed the rules and anyone can approach God. You know why the reason why Matthew and all of his friends were driven further away from God? It was because they thought it was about either what they did or what they didn't do. They thought it was all about, I have to do something for God to like me. And this is the reality, and some of you may get it, some of you won't. But one day you will. But many of you live your whole life right now when it comes to a relationship with God that you think you have to do a whole bunch of good stuff for God to like you. And when you don't do good things, then God doesn't like you. But what Matthew knew and what I want you to know this morning is this. It is not about what you do. It is about what Jesus has already done. And so many of you, you go through your life thinking, well, you know, I didn't go to church, or I, you know, didn't send money, or I do, I wasn't kind to my family, or and you put all these do's. And then you say, and I got a whole list of don'ts too, you know? All the things... That I shouldn't do. And Matthew just realized as he stood at the cross, as he stood at the empty tomb, he realized that the rules had changed. And that even a messed up tax collector who totally ignored all of the laws and messed up in so many ways, that he could approach God not based upon what he could do, but based upon what Jesus had already done. So here's what we're going to do. For the next few weeks, you guys don't want to miss. Because remember, next week is the Rated R story. You know what I mean? And this section in particular, I know will not miss it. But the next couple weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the characters. Next week, we're going to talk about Tamar and Judah. And some of you might be like, well, why are we doing this during Christmas time? Why can't we just have the baby cuddling Jesus and have a couple of, you know, little, 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 little. You know, I mean, you hear it on every year, don't you? Three wise men, the shepherds, the baby Jesus. Okay, let's get someone to dress up like Mary. And I want you to learn from these shady characters that they are a part of this family lineage, basically, Because He was the Savior of the world. That's what it's all about. That's what the point of Christmas is, folks. That God sent a Savior to save you from sin. I love the story of Jesus and the baby and all that. I made fun of a little bit. But that's not the point. The point is He sent a Savior for the world. And so the genealogy is a great way to launch what we're going to do. Now, here's my goal, and this is a very specific goal, and then you guys can be gone and go out to eat somewhere. And it's this. Many of you live your life based on the fact that the way you approach God is by the things that you do. And when you feel good and everything's great and you think you've done a lot of good stuff, I'm approachable. And when I'm bad and when things aren't so good, I'm not as approachable. And so I go to church, but I still just don't feel quite complete and I feel like I'm kind of in prison, in my own prison, because I just don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't do enough things. Or you spend your whole time, and this is some of you who are more legalistic, of don't doing. You have this whole list of things. I haven't done that in ten years. I haven't done this. You haven't had fun in ten years. You know what I mean? And most people do, folks. They really do. They live their entire life by, oh, i got to do this or I don't have to do this. and. What I want you to do, I want that thinking in your brain to stop. And I'm going to do everything I can over the next four weeks to just grind it into every single one of you. That it is not based upon what you do or what you don't do. It is based upon what Jesus has already done. And it's my hope and prayer that each of you would be able to have a clear conscience to be able to say, God, in my prayers... In my thinking, in my perspective, in my worldview, I'm not coming with that stinking thinking anymore that is based upon anything that I have done or I haven't done. I'm coming to you purely 100% based upon the fact that Jesus has done it for me. Jesus has the authority to forgive any hurt, any sin, anything in your life. And I accept that. And when I pray, and when I think about you, I'm not going to run everything through a grid of, well, I was righteous, so God must listen to me. Or I was unrighteous, and so God wasn't. That is irrelevant. Because I believe that Jesus, when you came into this world, you didn't come to be a helper. You didn't come to just give me a leg up. You didn't come to give me a second chance. You actually came to do exactly what Matthew wrote. And what he wrote was, is that you came to be a Savior for me. That you came to be a forgiver of all my sin. That I am not right enough on my own. But you sent Jesus to be righteousness for the world. And I'm going to dig as much as I can to get that out of here. Let's stand for closing prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can call you our Father. And Father, just as I never filter the love that I have for my own children, through the grid of how well they do or how not so well they do. God, you do the same thing for every single person in this room. You just love because that's the essence of who you are. And Father, for the man or woman who is tied up in legalism this morning, thinking that they just have to do one more thing, check it off, I pray that you would set them free. For the man or the woman who says, I can't even believe I'm in church this morning. You don't know what I've done this weekend or what I've done recently or the way that I've treated my family or for something in my past that I hope no one ever finds out about. I pray, God, right now that for that person, you would set them free. Father, help every single one of us to experience Christmas with a freedom like Matthew did. Of realizing that the rules have changed and we can approach God at any time, just as we are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. If you'd like prayer for anything, our prayer team will be up here. And uh, if you're new, we have a gift for you, Guest Connections. Don't leave without getting a gift.